Our text today continues in the telling of the story, basically the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments. I appreciate Bill Hemingway offering a four-week class this fall through our Park Road University offering, teaching the Ten Commandments. We're doing four commandments this fall, um, dealing with our relationship with God. In the spring, we'll pick up six commandments, dealing with our relationship with one another. So thanks to Bill. Um, join in any Sunday morning for Park Road University. We're continuing this story. Now, this is beyond the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments, but it's all part of that larger narrative. So let me read with you today um, this story as we continue in that narrative. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moses seems to be saying, I need a little bit of help here, Lord. This is a whole people Who's going to help me with this? Yet you, God, have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Now, listen in this text how many times Moses reminds God, these are your people, God, your people. What, what am I supposed to do with them? Listen how many times. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to the Lord, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct. In this way, we shall be distinct if you go with us, I and your people. From every people on the face of the earth, we shall be distinct. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. Interesting, this comment, for that one chapter before, we read that Moses has been speaking with God face to face. And so you get a little contradiction here. Um, one commentary says, don't be bothered by that. Um, this detail has to do with our encounter with God. Um, and so don't be bothered by that contradiction. No one can see my face and live. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. <clears throat> I appreciate our choir singing, He Hideth My Soul. We had some complaints this morning. Why are we singing this old hymn? We don't know this old hymn. Bob and Amy and I can sing every word of it. Um, I appreciate the choir singing about the cleft of the rock. It takes me back to my childhood. Um, there's too much in this text to deal with today, so all we're going to deal with the cleft of the rock is having read it and having the choir sing about it. Um, there's just too much to cover today. Um, what I want to 
talk with you about is that earlier paragraph. Um, How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct. We shall be distinct. You've heard the ancient story. As we begin, let me take just a moment to give a little background. Today's text is in response to the episode of the golden calf. You remember that episode? Moses is on the mountain. Sinai is covered in smoke as God gives the Ten Commandments. And what a great irony in this story. Moses is on the mountain and the people literally cannot wait for what might be God's most lasting message ever Instead of waiting on Moses to return, they turn to their own hedonism, to a self-indulgent, impatient spirituality. And they gather all the gold among them, and they melt it down, and they fashion a golden calf. And when Moses comes down the mountain, the people are circling around, dancing and singing, worshiping an idol made of their own treasures, of their own pleasures. In disgust, Moses throws down the tablet, shattering them, and immediately returns to the mountain, seeking God's forgiveness for these people and asking for a do-over. There's the background. Today's episode follows on the heels of that story, a story of the epic misplaced priority of a people, plural, a people, a gathering of people who, have, who are to be one, the people of God. God, in this episode today, is talking to Moses, but Moses keeps saying, God, have you forgotten? These are your people. Don't talk to me. These are your people. What am I supposed to do with your people? All the stuff Amy and I try to say to you really boils down to a few of the same things over and over and over. If you could finally get them, we could just all go home, you know? One of those points that we keep saying over and over and over is community. It's almost always about community. In the Bible, it's almost never about me and what's mine. It's we and what's ours together. I called an old sermon a theology of y'all. If we could read Hebrew and Greek where person and number are embedded within the noun, kind of like Spanish and other languages where the person and the number are embedded in the noun. You don't say, I eat, you say, como, that means I eat. The person is embedded in that. If we could read Hebrew that way, we would understand better. For example, God says through Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. God's not talking to Tom or Sandy. God's not even talking to Tom and Sandy and Bennett. God's talking to y'all. The word is plural. I know the plans I have for y'all, for all of you, together. Um, It's almost always a y'all. It's us together. So it's ironic that here Moses is having to remind God, it's not about me. It's about y'all. It's about us. It's about the plural. We are your people. These are your people. If you want to know why you hear the words social justice from this pulpit more than an evangelical altar call for the salvation of souls, it's because we believe that is, in fact, the biblical hope. Like the pledge to the flag, liberty and justice for all, 
It's about social justice. The hope that we will learn just practice, creating equality and hope, a future for the whole of society. Now, some in this nation have done well. Some have made it. Some are secure and prosperous. But the sweep of a biblical message is a call for justice for the people, for society. It's a theology of y'all, of a people, a distinct we. God started all this by calling one nation, Israel, a people, to be the light of all nations. So it's ironic that Moses must keep reminding God, God, it's about the people. God, it's your people. Now, maybe after the embarrassing golden calf episode, God is a little confused or maybe just a little peeved at the people. If you read the story at face value, you might understand why. And I wonder, what about today? Is there a distinct we in our message? Is our theology more a me-ology than a we-ology? What is it that sets the Christian church apart today? The text says we shall be distinct, but are we? Another of my soapboxes is the reminder that you and I are supposed to be different. Not just a we, but a distinct we. Being Christian and being patriotic Americans are not the same thing. Christian nationalism merges church and state in favor of one particular view of one particular religion. But until the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, God's justice will keep creating tension for people, no matter what nation. There will be tensions until the kingdom comes on earth. So we are supposed to be different. We shall be distinct, but how? If our commitments, our essential identities are tied to any ideology, any identity more than to biblical justice. We're not supposed to act like the Democrats or the Republicans. We're not supposed to be American or Ukrainian or Russian or Chinese. Our loyalty cannot be to capitalism or communism or socialism. We are not supposed to be any of those things ultimately. There may be beneficial ideals to any of those various identities, but God is not calling us to those. God is calling us beyond those. God is creating a new people, a distinct we. And distinct will always mean set apart, separated from, different. Too many people today cannot separate Christianity from their other loyalties which are often more important to them. So how shall we be distinct? We shall be distinct when we learn to do to others as, you would have, as we would have them do to us. When we learn not to return evil for evil, but to return evil with good. We shall be distinct when we learn to love our enemies and practice turning the other cheek. When we can believe the servant really is the greatest among us. When we can finally demand compassion with the least of these. And yes, all of these are direct quotes from the Bible. How shall we be distinct? We will listen to the words of Jesus and follow. 
in the last few years, troubling and very confused. Some of the loudest members of the Christian church have made peace with a particularly caustic and militant brand of American politics. The pastor stands to preach from the Sermon on the Mount, the poor, the meek, the peacemakers, the pure, turning the other cheek. And at the door, someone says, where'd you get all that woke politics, preacher? And the pastor says, I'm just quoting Jesus directly. And the response comes, well, that no longer works. We need something powerful. Jesus is too weak. Russell Moore, the editor of the conservative magazine Christianity Today, says that story has been repeated to him over and over and over in the last few years. I do not believe Jesus is weak. I do not believe the way of Jesus is weak. I do not believe the biblical vision for justice is weak. I believe, as G.K. Chesterton once said, it is not that Christianity has been tried and been found wanting. It is that Christianity has seldom ever been tried. In a debate when Ron Paul was running for the presidency, he suggested that our foreign policy should be based on the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He was almost booed off the stage. If you're wondering if I think that the ethics of Jesus could be effective as a national politics, I absolutely do. As Teilhard de Chardin said one day, someday after mastering the winds and the waves and the tides and gravity, we shall harness for God the energies of love and then for the second time in history of the world, in the history of the world, humans will have discovered fire. When we learn a politics of love, we will change the world. I believe it will happen. We just need some people with courage to speak out, stand up, step out. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to fit smoothly with any of our identities. Biblical justice is supposed to call us to God. Flannery O'Connor said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you odd. We are called to be different. Yes, odd. And when we learn to trust that God truly is with us and when we let that partnership be the cornerstone of our identity, our security, our priority, we shall be distinct. May it be so. For those of you visiting today, we are both preaching for a few weeks, and we are preaching a sermon series that uh, basically just says that Jesus taught what Jesus learned. So it's been fascinating. The Old Testament text and the New Testament text for each day are not really meant to dovetail together like we're trying to force them to do. Uh, but when we force them to do it, we do see themes begin to emerge. And so Russ is taking that Hebrew text that Jesus would have known so well that story. And then as he's teaching people along the way, he is using that to inform this. And so many people like to say that, oh, the Old Testament is just a mean and wrathful and vengeful God. And Jesus came to bring light and love. But if you read carefully, Jesus can be very critical and not just uh, happy, sappy, 
but he can be very difficult and very trying and very challenging. And the Old Testament can come through and let God shine as a God of mercy and love at the same time. So our text for today, you're going to think it's about money. It is not. So do not get distracted by the question that the people test Jesus with. It's just a surface question to get to a deeper issue. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Don't you just hear sarcasm kind of dripping on their tongues? Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? So they bring up a topic that's really just going to get in there and turn that knife. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And then he said to them, Whose head is on this and whose title? And they answered, The emperor's. And then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed and left him and went away. Their amazement, I don't think, was the way we like to reason. Oh, wow, he's so wise. It was more, oh, wow. We're not going to be able to test this guy. You've heard the ancient story. This is a test. This station is conducting a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. The man speaking these three sentences was known to me in my childhood as the interrupter of good programming. Like Little House on the Prairie, come on. Do you have to test during Little House on the Prairie? The emergency broadcast system was established in 1963 to provide the President of the United States with an expeditious method of communicating with the American public in the event of war, threat of war, or grave national crisis. Interestingly, the system has never been used for a national emergency, just for interrupting Laura and Pa and Ma Mary, this is only a test, is followed by 30 seconds of an obnoxious beep. This is what I thought of when I read our text for today. Only they didn't announce it to Jesus. They were more subtle than this is a test, this is only a test. But that's what it was. It was a test. I wonder if Jesus got sick and tired of being tested. Teachers among us, I know it is an important part of your work. How else will you be able to manage 
how else will you be able to measure if students are learning? How else will you be able, be able to ensure if they have actually read what you asked them to read or if they have practiced what you have asked them to practice if you do not test them? I'm grateful that people that drive cars have to take a test to make sure they know how to maneuver the roads. It keeps us all safe. I'm glad that doctors have to continue to test and test and test to ensure that they are retaining the knowledge they are learning. It helps to keep us well. I get the whole testing system, but the life of faith is not a test situation. The life of faith is a life of practice. God is not testing us. I want to say that one more time. God is not testing us. I don't care what bad theology you hear out there implying that God's methodology is in the testing department. God does not test us to prove our faithfulness. God is not mean-spirited or conniving. So get it out of your mind that God is ever testing you. And if you ever catch yourself saying, I believe God must be testing me, I want you to say, ha ha, just kidding, God doesn't do that. It's bad theology and it is so prevalent. God's expectations for us are too high to test us. The Pharisees and the Herodians are setting a trap for Jesus in this scene today, hoping he will answer their questions improperly and either he will lose favor with the people or he'll get in trouble with the Roman authorities. Either would have done the job for them. The tax they are referring to is a poll tax and was very unpopular among the Jewish people at that time. They were not as concerned about his potential violation of a religious code as his going against the popular sentiment. Blogger Rick Morley was really helpful to me in finally understanding, oh, this isn't about money. He says, it seems at face value a support for the separation of church and state and a framework for understanding that we each have civic responsibility on one hand and religious responsibility on the other, and that these two things are separate endeavors. We have a duty to state and a duty to our God. However, he says, this isn't even close to what Jesus was talking about here. First of all, in the ancient world, there was no concept of separation of civic and religious life. There was no way to even express that in language to suggest that that's what's going on here is to read our culture into the culture of Jesus' day, and that's not helpful. Caesar wasn't just the secular head of state. He was proclaimed, self-proclaimed, to be a god. The emperor was worshipped with full religious honors, and those who didn't exalt the Caesar as Lord were in big, big trouble. When Jesus asked the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians to produce a coin, 
and they produce a Roman coin with the image of the Caesar on it, they show how guilty they are just by producing what he asked for. Carrying around an image of a pagan god in their pocket, they are guilty of idolatry. At this point in the encounter, Jesus has already won, and they don't even know it. They have self-identified as part of a pagan religious state. They've broken the first and the second commandments. And at this point, Jesus could have just walked away, mic drop, victorious, but he doesn't. He has more. He raises the question, what then belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? And for Jesus, the answer to that test question is, everything belongs to God. Obviously, then, this is not a call for a separation of church and state. This isn't about the establishment of a dual responsibility to God and country. This is a call to give all that we have and all that we are to God. In our prayer of confession, help us remember that all we are and all we have are gifts from you, gifts to be shared in service and love. They were setting Jesus up to fail their test, but he passed with flying colors, even if they were not savvy enough to know it. This is not a test, he says. You give to God what belongs to God, and that is everything. The money with the emperor's face on it is not of God. So you give to the emperor what belongs to the emperor. For those who are faithful, there is one world. It's a world where empire reigns, yes, but for the faithful, empire does not reign supreme. Only God does that. So what makes us distinct? We know who we are. That's what makes us distinct. We know who we are. We know to whom we belong. I don't need for my money to say on its face, I know who I am. I don't need the dollar bill to tell me in God I trust. I already know that. I don't need to have the Ten Commandments in any courtroom. I know who I am. This is not a test to see if we can recite them. The life of the faithful is not a test. It's just that we're constantly studying. For no test in the end, we're just studying hard as we can. We are studying the life of Jesus. We're using a book about the story of the people of God and we watch how they rise up and how they fall back down and how they get back up again. I'm glad it's not a test because I'm afraid I would fail it miserably. I think many Christians try to pose the life of faith as a pass-fail test. At least that's how I grew up. Pass, you go to heaven. Yay, better than a gold star. 
fail, you go to hell. That's bad. I think most teachers would agree that the ideal student is the student that's just eager to learn and willing to take risks, willing to think outside the box, willing to be creative. The kind of student they want to teach is one that would never have to be tested because the student was just eager to learn, wanting to know more, asking the hard questions, trying things out, willing even to learn from mistakes. There would be no test taking and no failing. There would just be learning and practicing. Teachers would never have to test students if they always lived in an eagerness to learn, an eagerness to create, an eagerness to question, and even an eagerness to fail. We would become so distinctive if we lived our lives in a way that everybody could see in us that desire to be more like Jesus. The life of faith would be much more appealing if people could see in us a distinctive edge calling us to love more and forgive more. I think faith would be more attractive if we asked more questions and took more risks, all in the name of God. But you know what makes us distinctive these days, don't you? Christians, that is. Here's what makes us distinctive. Condemnation, judgment, exclusivity. The things for which we are distinctive today make me want to run and hide in the cleft of the rock. I would fail the test that most Christians pose. Uh, don't worry, I will not go there again. But you can go back and listen to the sermon from not too long ago where I pointed out that just by identifying as female, I would fail the test for standing in this pulpit. This, the life of faith, is not a test. It's a practice. How we practice faith is what makes us distinct, different, called out. I found this Kate Bowler blessing entitled, For When You Need a Second to Think It Over. Blessed are you who don't have all the right answers. Blessed are you who realize that I don't know is the best response and posture for now. You lean in, unafraid to learn and change and be wrong along the way. Blessed are you stretched and pressed and pulled by the uncertainty, deciding to not stay the same because we are not who we were. We have been pulled into the unknown without our permission. But the challenge is the same. Reveal truth in love in the midst of seeming chaos. Reveal truth in love in the midst of seeming chaos. Blessed are you who realize that community can help you see truth more fully, even if your chin has to be turned gently toward the truth. 
being fragile amid the world of hammers takes courage to be wrong, to learn something new, to choose humility and kindness over being right. May we be a people who are curious, hopeful, and courageous. That is the blessing. This is not a test. This church is not conducting a test of the one true God. This is only a faith lived fully. May it be so. Amen.